0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing us all back. Thank you for the building, for the preparations that go into being able to be here every Wednesday night. And I thank you, Father, for the souls you've brought into this room. I thank you for the fellowship I received from them. I thank you for the encouragement that they are to me. I thank you, Father, just for the mere fact that in this day and age that there would be those who would come to hear your word proclaimed, especially, Father, in light of the many distractions in our day that might give us reason to be elsewhere. Father, we have a text before us that you wrote and you prepared so that we would understand you and your plan and your sovereignty and your power. But Father, our abilities to understand it are completely dependent upon the Spirit and his power to reveal and our willingness to listen. So as we begin this study, Father, I pray for three things. Father, I pray that we would finish what we start. I pray, Father, that we would listen with ears to hear with the Spirit's empowerment, and I pray, Father, that we would have a will and the courage to act on what we hear, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Thank you, Father, for many blessings, not the least of all, Father, your Son, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. We have before you in the story of Exodus, arguably, the best-known biblical story, that of Moses leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt, like our tagline on the website said, The book is always better than the movie. And most people have seen the famous Charlton Heston movie, no doubt. I think in some ways that may have led the popular culture into believing that this book is merely story, merely Hollywood fable. In fact, Exodus is a literal historical account of God orchestrating miraculous and important events in the course of fulfilling his promises. Just like the rest of scripture, it is literal. And the book, you know, was written by Moses by the one who uh, Charlton Heston played, every New Testament author, including Jesus himself, acknowledged that the book was true factual history written by Moses. The events of the book itself take place between the 16th and 15th centuries B.C., and they cover in total a little more than 215 years of human history. Moses relates the story as an eyewitness And throughout Israel's history, at least until recent years, until the recent history of Israel, the nation of Israel itself has always considered this story to be historical fact. This was their history. Later, writers in Scripture refer back to this story of Israel leaving Egypt, the Lord meeting them at the mountain of them entering the wanderings in the desert period and so on. And whenever you see it referenced in the New Testament by any New Testament author, it's always seen as a literal account. For example, Stephen in Acts seven, when he gives his history of the nation of Israel in speaking about this part of the history, he recounts it as fact, as history itself, as literal history. Jesus spoke of God's appearance to Moses at the mountain and of the giving of the law as a literal account. The New Testament letter writers, uh, the epistle writers, they make many references to Exodus. In fact, after Psalms and Isaiah, there's more references to Exodus in the New Testament than any other book of the Bible. So a literal understanding of this book is absolutely essential. If you came prepared tonight to study it in any other way, well, I'm here to tell you that I think you're going to be surprised and hopefully pleasantly surprised to know that what you're reading is historical fact written by God through men, so that we would know what happened. And in knowing that it's literal... But it's true, there's added power and added significance to the prophetic pictures that are embedded throughout this book. And this book is a treasure of prophetic pictures. The Exodus story is rich in pictures of sin, pictures of redemption, pictures of baptism, pictures of the kingdom, and le- not least of all, of course, pictures of judgment and of the Messiah himself, Christ. It's especially rich in pictures of the Messiah, particularly in the tabernacle and some of the elements of the law, and of his redemptive work in the very Exodus itself. For those of you who just came out of the Revelation study, you already know there are some pictures in the judgments of what will come later in tribulation. Above all of that, though, the Exodus story is a story of God's sovereignty, of God sovereignly accomplishing his purpose in and through the lives of men and the lives of the Israelites and of the Egyptians. Eugene Merrill called Exodus the most significant historical and theological event of the Old Testament. So there really isn't much we could do in the Old Testament of greater significance than study this book. And like any book of scripture, if we're going to understand it properly, that will hinge to a large extent on our knowledge of other scripture and to a lesser degree on our familiarity with the customs and the history of Egypt, of the time and circumstances of the event. So in order for me to help us understand the book properly, I'm going to bring, at times, history and culture and custom from the time and the place of these events and tonight we're going to do a little bit of that background work particularly out of the book of genesis in fact if you just took a cursory glance at the opening verses of the book of exodus you're immediately taken to a story out of the book of genesis in fact you'd have to go back into genesis to understand it properly and we're going to do some of that tonight it's out of the story of joseph you can even argue that the entire book of Exodus is made necessary by the events of Genesis. So Genesis created Exodus in terms of the need for it. There are basically six parts to this book. Now, as I mentioned, in future weeks, we'll have graphics at times. We'll have handouts. The intent here is to help you follow what I teach. And in time after the class, in a contemplative moment, review it and consider it for yourselves. If you're a teacher or a parent You'll have plenty of opportunity, I would hope, to use what you learn in teaching others. And that's part of why these materials are available to you. In the meantime, tonight and and actually every night, if you want to take good notes, that also helps. Starting with this, perhaps, there are six parts to this book as we're going to study it. And this is all in my notes. So if you don't want to write it down now, of course, you can download the notes. Part one, which is chapters one through four, is the call of Moses. Part two is is chapters 5 through 11, and that's when God demonstrates his power to the nation of Israel or to the nation of Egypt and Israel. Part 3, which is chapters 12 through 15, is the Exodus itself, the departure of Israel from Egypt. And then part 4 is chapters 16 through 31. Now that's going to be the giving of the law. And then part 5 picks up in chapters 32 through 34. That's when Israel decides to break this law, this covenant, and God then renews it with them. So that's where we're going to go over the next few months. Tonight, we're doing the call of Moses. We're starting that. We're also going to have to look at some of the historical background of Egypt. We want to understand some of the politics of Egypt. We want to understand why they welcomed Joseph and then later enslaved his own people. And we have to look at the culture of Egypt to understand that. In the coming weeks, we're going to do even more of that. I'm not going to dump it all on you tonight. I had enough of that just to cover one hour by itself. So that'll be metered out as we get to it across several weeks Tonight, let's start, as you might expect, in the beginning, in chapter 1. And in it, we're going to learn some important Jewish history. So chapter 1 is Jewish history, helping us understand what comes after it in the book of Exodus. So let's start reading there. Exodus 1, I'll read 1 through 7 to open up, and then we're going to look at that for a little while. Exodus 1, 1, it starts. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one, with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Moses opens the story with recounting the history of Israel as they entered. He's referring back to the story that is centered really in in Genesis 46. In that chapter, Israel, Jacob, the man Israel, leaves Canaan, bringing all his descendants with him in response to Joseph's invitation. His family includes his 11 sons, the 12th being Joseph, who's already in the land. And it also includes all his grandsons and granddaughters, in that number, according to verse 5 in Exodus chapter 1, the number of them altogether were 70, not counting Joseph. In Genesis forty-six twenty-six, though, if I go back to Genesis to 46, where we hear the first time about this departure for Egypt, this is what we hear there, forty-six twenty-six. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were sixty-six in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were seventy. Is it sixty-six or is it seventy? And over the course of centuries, men have made something of these differences in number. In fact, if you were to go to Acts chapter 7, where we hear of Stephen again giving his discourse, he numbers them at seventy-five. So 75 in Acts 7, 66 or 70 in Genesis 46. And now we have 70 at the beginning of Exodus. So while I don't spend a lot of time following these things in all cases, I think it's worth tonight looking at it because it's prominent in the text and it's been an issue of confusion for many people over the years. We hear in Genesis 46, the place where this event is actually recorded for the first time, that all the descendants of Jacob were 66 persons. But then we read in the very next verse, that the persons of Jacob's house were 70, which matches what we hear now in Exodus. The difference is actually pretty simple. Moses is making clear, in fact, why there is a difference when he wrote in Genesis of the two numbers in back-to-back verses. In verse 26, he describes all those who are descended from Jacob and who came to Egypt. So those who are descended from Jacob and came to Egypt to Egypt in response to Joseph's call. Well, that number must exclude Jacob. He can't descend from himself. And it excludes Joseph, because he's already in Egypt, and it excludes all of Joseph's family, which in this case is his two sons. That's four. So the number who left Canaan, who were descended from Jacob, were 66. 70 minus 4. Now the second number, 70 is according to Genesis 46:27 that is the number of all the persons of Jacob's household. Well, if I'm going to now count all of those who are of Jacob's household, regardless of where they are, then I add those four back in because Jacob is of his own household. Now I'm back to 70. So the difference between 66 and 70 is just a reflection of those who came from Canaan who were descendants versus those who are entirely in the home. What about Acts now, chapter 7? Why is there 75 listed? Well, Stephen is describing all who ended up in Egypt, and over the course of Israel's life, Joseph has grandkids. He has five. So when you add in Joseph's grandchildren, now you have the whole house being 75 at a later point after they've all arrived. Now, as you may remember, as you know, probably from studying already in Genesis, Joseph is really central to the story of how Israel ended up in Egypt. Just to recount it briefly, Joseph was sold into bondage by his brothers. You can read that in Genesis 37. So in Genesis 37, Joseph sold into bondage. Later, as you know, Joseph rises to power, He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. He is often considered a picture of Christ in the events of his life, ultimately, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who come to Egypt seeking help in the course of a famine. And when they show up before Joseph, not knowing he is Joseph, of course, as the story goes, Joseph eventually reveals himself to them. Now, that's just a short recap, very short recap of how God brought Israel into Egypt. But the question for us tonight to open up the study of Exodus is not how, but why? Why did God want Israel in Egypt? Why does God cause Israel to leave Canaan? And secondly, and maybe even more importantly, why does he want them enslaved in Egypt? And that's an important question to understanding the events of Exodus, which is something we will look at tonight in chapter one. The answer for why Israel is there comes in two parts. The first part of the answer is going to be found much earlier in the story of Genesis, much earlier than the story of Joseph. In fact, The first part to the answer is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 in the story of Noah. Genesis 9 is the chapter after the flood. Noah and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife, they exit the ark and they are camped somewhere near the ark. And one night Noah gets drunk and finds himself naked in his tent. And one of his sons, Ham, enters the tent finds his father naked. Later, he tells his brothers what he has found, what he has seen. And based on the intonation of the text, it's clear he takes some pleasure in sharing this story of his father's shame. Noah's other sons, Shem and Japheth, they act properly in response to this news. They go in covering their father's shame, all the while making sure they don't look upon his nakedness themselves. This is all very It's very important to understand how much nakedness is shameful in the Scripture's view, despite what our culture has come to think. And when Noah wakes up and he discovers all that's transpired, and specifically the fact that Ham has treated him so poorly, treated him with contempt, really, Noah then is stirred by the Spirit to pronounce a prophetic judgment, but not against Ham specifically, but against Ham's son, Canaan. And here's what he says in Genesis 9:24. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Noah's pronouncement was a judgment that God himself inspired for his own eternal purposes. And since all of Noah's sons, including Ham, were God-fearing men, that's why they were on the ark to begin with, God cannot curse those who are his. So he directed the curse into Ham's line one generation later to Canaan. And in scripture, the word curse is a very specific word. It has a very specific sense. We use the word in a variety of ways. The scripture, though, generally speaking, uses it in one way. And in the way the scripture uses it, it is a condemnation to eternal judgment. It is not anything less than that. So the earth was cursed, meaning it's on a one way trip to destruction and Satan is cursed, and here we see Canaan being cursed. With these words, Noah then condemns by God's decree, by God's inspiration, the entire line of Canaan, all the Canaanites, to destruction. Now, I want you to flash forward 360 years from this moment to the story of Abraham. The next stop along our way to answering the first part here of why is Israel in Egypt and why are they enslaved The next part of the answer comes from the story of Abraham. In Genesis 15, God first promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Israel would enter Egypt in a certain way and experience certain things. Look at Genesis 15, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants... Will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So the Lord told Abraham, or as he was known at that time, Abram, that his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not their own for 400 years. Keeping in mind that when Abram heard these words, he didn't have a single descendant. But he was being promised those descendants. And here was also a promise on what would happen to them. Furthermore, these descendants, as they lived in this foreign land, would find themselves enslaved and oppressed for a certain time. But at the end of all of that, God would judge the nation that oppressed Israel. And then he promised Abraham that the nation would let them go, that they would be leaving this time of oppression and would return to their land. This, I think, is in keeping with what God gives to Abraham in other parts of his promises, that those nations that would bless Israel would be blessed, those that would curse would curse. So when Egypt turned from being a nation that blessed to a nation that cursed, they then set into motion the events that would lead to their own judgment. But this is all according to God's plan, and his sovereignty had mapped this out long before, as you can see. It would take to the fourth generation... Before these people would return, I want you to understand what he's saying there Four generations. Abraham's great, great grandchildren would return into the land. So four generations from Abraham, the nation of Israel would be coming back into the land. Then in verse 16, God gives Abraham one of the reasons why his descendants must go to Egypt for this time. This answer is connected to what we just learned about the curse against Canaan. God tells Abraham that the iniquity, or if you want to use a word we're more familiar with, the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. The word Amorite might throw you off until you understand that Amorite is simply a name for Canaanites. It's one of the Canaanite people, but that name just becomes synonymous with the whole of them. Amorite is generic for Canaanite people. All those people, all those ites that lived in the region of Canaan. So you can read this as the Canaanites have not yet reached the point where their sin was full or complete. That's what God is saying to Abraham. Now, we're going to have to interpret what he just said there. We have to understand what the meaning of full is, and we have to understand it by the context of the covenant itself. Let's get out of the way what he's not saying. God is not suggesting that the Canaanites' sin was insufficient to warrant God bringing eternal judgment to them for that sin. Because just one sin is enough warrant for God's judgment, right? So there is no sense here that God has a predetermined amount of sin required before he acts in judgment. All men are are due the penalty of their sin apart from the grace of God in Christ. So there is no tank that has to get filled up. So that's not what he's saying. All men who die in their sins will be judged. Therefore, we have to rule out a certain context. We have to rule out that God here is not talking about eternal judgment though certainly all the Canaanite people will face or did face eternal judgment when they died. Certainly that happened. But my point is, he's not referring to that judgment because that judgment doesn't need to wait for anything. It's appointed to men to die once and then comes judgment. What he's referring to here is a temporal or earthly judgment that has been appointed to them, but is not yet ready to take place. The destruction of the Canaanite people and their removal from the land in keeping with Noah's prophecy is the judgment he's referring to. And it is not yet time for that judgment or to say it in a somewhat artful or poetic way. He's giving them yet more time to sin before he will take the appointed action that has been decreed in Noah's day. In fact, it will be not only the 360 years from the time of Noah's statement to Abraham, but will add another 400 years before that judgment is actually executed on them at the point when the nation of Israel enters into the land. Now, some commentators have gone with that thought one step further, and I think one step too far. They have concluded that God must mean that he's giving more time for the Canaanites to repent. Well, that can't be the proper interpretation, friends. And there's several reasons why. First, according to the Bible, the repentance that leads to God's forgiveness and therefore to salvation is something God himself grants. It does not come merely in the course of time as a matter of just waiting long enough. When the Gentiles were beginning to receive the gospel, the disciples, Jewish men, were surprised at that prospect, but had to come to grips with it. And they said this in Acts 11:18. when they heard this, meaning when they heard that Gentiles were being saved, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. They came to the obvious conclusion. If they're believing, then God's granting it. 2 Corinthians, Paul makes the same statement theologically. 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there is a sorrow that's natural, but there's also one God himself can create, that he grants, and that leads to salvation. The repentance each of us have experienced Those who know Christ. So God is not delaying here simply because he expects that more time will give more chance for some of them to repent. It doesn't work that way. It's not about delaying for that purpose. Furthermore, he's already spoken through Noah concerning their destiny. The curse has been spoken. God's word will not go out and return void. He cannot change what he's already said will be. God has pronounced his curse. His word is fast and sure. It cannot be changed. This is going to be their outcome. So why then? Is God waiting to execute this earthly judgment, which he's promised for the Canaanite people and then give the land to Israel? What's holding him back? Why doesn't he appear to Abraham right then and there and say to you, I grant this land and to your people. And the time is now for the Canaanites to be destroyed. Well, the answer is God has determined that the sinful Canaanite people would receive their judgment at the hands of the Jewish people. Through them would come judgment. Under Joshua, they are to be wiped out. They are supposed to be wiped out forever, erasing their memory, displacing them from the land. That's the journey God intends to take Israel through. Abraham's descendants were not just appointed to occupy the land. They were appointed to conquer those who were in the land and then occupy the land. And God's curse on Canaan was to make available a land for the future Israel. But at the point that God reveals this in Genesis 15 to Abraham, Israel doesn't even exist. The nation is one guy. It's not even a nation. Technically, Abraham's not the first Jew. He's the first Hebrew. The first Jew is his son, Isaac, his first descendant. So at the point he hears this message, there's nothing except Abraham. And the nation under Abraham grows pretty slowly. Even after 175 years later, from this moment, the nation consists of only a dozen people. As Israel follows Joseph into Egypt... All that is in Jacob's household, all of Israel, is 70 people. Well, we know God is capable of defeating anyone with any kind of resources he chooses, or none at all, if it be his will. Nevertheless, 70, most of whom are women and children, are not the right force to go into Canaan and occupy that land. Not yet. So the first reason God sends Israel into Egypt, the first reason we find ourselves encountering an Exodus story is because he wants to put them up in a fertile land, allowing 400 years of time to pass, in which the nation will grow to be numerous enough that they then can be ready for the task of conquering and inhabiting the land that God will give them. Chapter 1 of Exodus tells us the story of Israel multiplying. You notice in verses 6 and 7 that after Joseph and his brothers died in Egypt, The nation of Israel, we're told, remains fruitful, increases greatly. In fact, there's a sevenfold repetition in Hebrew of words associated with great or exceeding or multiply or increase. So as to show this sevenfold or God inspired, perfected program of development in the nation of this growth that takes place. They grow fast. So Israel's living, as you may know from the story of Genesis, they're living in Goshen. Goshen is your backwater Place of Egypt. It was largely uninhabited by the Egyptians, but it's a fertile region of the northwestern part of Egypt. But because it was somewhat remote, it became the perfect place for Israel to hide out. And it was the place that Joseph was able to convince Pharaoh to assign to Jacob's family when they arrived. So God wanted Israel to incubate, so to speak, for 400 years. But we really don't have the answer to the question of why in a foreign land? I mean, couldn't they have incubated just somewhere in Canaan for a while? Did it necessitate them going into Egypt? And then even more than that, why did they have to be enslaved while they were incubating? There's still that question. So the second part of our answer now is still necessary for us to see the whole picture. The second part of the answer comes from Genesis 38. Genesis 38, which is, if you don't remember, the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, as I noted earlier, the story of Joseph begins in chapter 37. That's where he's sold into slavery by his brothers. That begins really the story of how Israel ended up in Egypt. So chapter 37, you have Joseph. Then you see Joseph's story pick up again in chapter 39 when he's in Potiphar's house. But in between that story, it's really just stuck in, almost interrupting the flow of that story, is chapter 38. Now, chapter 38 does not connect, apparently connect, to the story of Joseph. It seems to just come out of nowhere, starts at the beginning, finishes at the end, and then we're back to Joseph. And for many, it's left a confusing thought of why is that happening in this way? Why did Moses just stick this in? There's a very specific reason. The interruption of the story of Joseph to the tell the story of Judah is to explain, to give us our second reason for why Joseph needed to go to Egypt. So time doesn't permit me to recount the entire chapter. It's worth your time to read it. It's only one chapter after all, but we can summarize it quickly enough. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob. He's one of the tribes, as you probably know. In chapter 38, Judah makes the unfortunate decision to take a wife from among the Canaanite people. And the sons of this marriage are evil men, and so the Lord kills both of them. Later, God permits Judah to have children again, but this time through a woman who is the widowed daughter-in-law of one of those dead sons, Tamar. She is a Jewish woman. By her name, we know her to be Semite. In the story of Judah, then, we learn two important details as it relates to our question here. Why are they in Egypt? Why are they enslaved? First, this is the first time in the story of Israel that anyone in Israel has dared to take wives from the cursed Canaanite people. None of the patriarchs had done this. Abraham had a wife already, as you know. He sent his servant back to get a wife for Isaac from his people back in Haran. Jacob was sent by Isaac to go and get his wives from Haran as well. So for the first time now, someone in the line of Israel has taken a wife from the Canaanites. The Canaanites, as we've already said, are cursed people. What that means is the line of Canaanites must die out, must cease to exist. So if a member of Israel intermarries with Canaanites their children carry that curse, their children will have to die out. That is in part why God, if not entirely why God, has already told the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do not take your wives from the people in this land. Live apart from them. Be set apart. So consequently, when Judah marries a Canaanite woman and has two sons, both his sons are evil in the sight of the Lord, and according to the curse, God puts both of them to death. They're intermingled with Canaanites. Therefore, Judah's choice to marry a Canaanite has come to threaten the very survival of the nation of Israel, particularly if his brothers follow suit. But there's an even more important concern than merely that, if that's not enough. Judah, we find out in chapter 38 of Genesis, is the tribe carrying the seed promise that God has delivered to Abraham. Now, Paul explains in Galatians that the seed promise is the promise God gave Abraham in reference to the Messiah's coming. So to summarize this very quickly for our sake tonight, in the promises God delivered Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise for a people, a posterity, a nation, an inheritance. But embedded in that was some language to specifically call out a seed. And Paul says in Galatians, it was not plural. It was singular. He was talking about Messiah. There would come in the line of Abraham, the Messiah who would eventually, as we know, be a blessing not only to Israel, but to the whole world, to all nations. That's part of the promise. The seed promise can only be inherited by one child in each generation. Unlike the rest of the promise that incorporates the nation as a whole, the seed promise cannot be a shared promise. Only one line is going to have the Messiah. The Messiah comes only once out of one line. So it must go from one person to one person to one person. It went from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael. It went from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. And it goes from Jacob to Judah, as we're told in Genesis 38, and no one else. Well, if Judah is going to intermarry with a cursed people, then it puts the very existence of the Messiah at risk. Well, certainly God cannot have this. So immediately we recognize the problem of having the nation of Israel incubating for 400 years in the land of Canaan, if already they're starting to compromise in the things God has directed them. Had God left them in Canaan, the nation of Israel will have become Canaanite through intermarriage and the line of the Messiah would have been polluted by intermarriage. God's entire plan for Israel and the Canaanites and the Messiah and the world would have been disrupted. So the second reason the Lord moves Israel into Egypt was to protect them from intermarrying the Canaanites. And the story of Judah then interrupts the story of Joseph to give us that explanation. When they come into Egypt, they're set apart in Goshen so that by their physical separation from the people of Egypt, they are likewise being protected from becoming a part of that society while they are there. But then God goes a step further and you have to love what God is willing to do to get his promises the way he wants them. He determines that Israel would become slaves to the nation of Egypt. And as slaves, they were precluded from marrying or associating in Egypt culture whatsoever for the entire time that they are there. So the question of why did God send Israel to Egypt? The answers are to give time for the nation to grow large enough to defeat Canaan and take possession of the land, to separate them from the possibility of intermarrying with other nations while they waited. And then, interestingly, if you look past this and into the end of Exodus, you might ask yourself, well, what's going to stop them from making this mistake after they leave the land? Well, as they leave the land, God codifies the nation's separation from the world through the giving of a law that precludes the nation from mixing with Gentiles. So as they leave Egypt, they go out with a law that now says they are not permitted and they're bound by a law and they have a priesthood and a legal structure for maintaining it. So God has a plan of handoffs from one moment in their existence to another to maintain this separation forevermore. And even today, it's a a miracle. There is no earthly explanation for why the nation of Israel throughout its history of dispersion maintained its unique national identity, though it was put into other countries no other group has ever done that anthropologically there's no explanation for it except that God has always been about protecting and preserving his people in the world going back to the chapter now we've already noted that the nation has grown and they've prospered in Goshen just as God intended so now you have to see this growth as not merely a part of the story in the by and by no it is the story they're there to grow It's the incubation that we expect, and God is reflecting that. Moses is reflecting that here at the very beginning. Now, at this point, God begins to move Israel from being a privileged group of people in Egypt into being slaves. And that begins here in the next verse, verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We're stopping there, verse by verse. This is where we're going to get a chance to get a little of that Egyptian background and Egyptian politics, which I think you'll find interesting. This is where your handout comes in. Now, what we're going to do with this handout over the course of the next few weeks is intersperse some of the events of the first three to four chapters with the corresponding Egyptian historical events because they directly relate. The things you're going to see in the story of Moses are a direct consequence of what's happening in the politics of the culture of Egypt. And you'll see a timeline, as you note, on the left side showing the events of the Exodus story, which we're going to cover, of course, throughout this study. But on the right side, you see a family tree without names in it. When we're all said and done, I'll have a version of this in color and has all the names. And if you're like me and you just you don't do homework and you cheat off other people, then (laughs) you can wait till this is finished and then download the full version later. But if you enjoy sort of keeping notes, this will help you do it. So we're told Egypt now has a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. This is the first line at the top of that family tree. The first blank at the very top is where we're talking now about this new pharaoh. Now, at first thought, this is sort of an odd statement. It's odd to suggest that someone could arise as a pharaoh and not know Joseph. We're still talking about Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. How do you not know an important person from your history in the course of everyday life. Pharaohs as monarchs were almost always the son of the prior monarch. So how could you ever get a monarch that could rise up and forget his own family history? Well, the answer is that the regime changed not just a change of leader, but an entire change of regime. To understand this, we need a little history lesson. When Joseph came to Egypt, he entered the land during a period called the 16th dynasty. Of Egypt. So in Egypt's long history as a world power, they had different dynasties, or the word dynasty is really house of rule. So they had these houses of rule that passed one to another over the centuries. And we number them. And the 16th is the one that came 16th. So at the time Joseph came into the land, the 16th dynasty was in power. They eventually go one further to the 17th. They are a people group called the Hicksaws, H Y. K-S-O-S. HYKSOS. You see that at the top right on your paper. The Hicksaws. These are not Egyptians. They are actually from the Fertile Crescent, from Haran, who invaded Egypt, conquered the native Egyptians, and controlled them in about 1670 B.C. and onward. So they took control of Egypt. They are Semites. They are from Noah's son, Shem. All Semites are men who descend from the line of Shem. They share the same, very same family origins as Hebrews. So they were the same family origins as Joseph and all of Jacob's family. But the people of Egypt are not Semites. They are not descended from Shem. They are descended from Ham. So they are Hamites. And, in fact, Noah lives all the way until right before Abraham. So, I mean, the the events of the flood are still relatively fresh in the memory of humanity coming into this period of time. So they know who are Semites. They know who are Hamites. These differences matter in this day and age. So here you have Hamite people ruled by Semitic people who are hated as a result. In fact, Egyptians are the first people group of history that we know of who are dedicated anti-Semites. Naturally, the Hyksaws themselves had to work to maintain their rule over the Hamites because there were fewer Hyksaws than there were Hamites. So they would welcome any other Semitic people who might want to immigrate and make their home in Egypt because the presence of other Semites in the land helped strengthen the Hicksaw's rule, give them allies in the land. All right, well, now that tells you a little bit about why Joseph and his family were welcomed and elevated to power and why they were given such a prominent place in the culture. The Hicksaw pharaoh that Joseph knew was one who welcomed Semites. And there was one more to follow after that man. But at a point, the Hyksos rule comes to an end and the 17th dynasty is overthrown and the 18th dynasty is stood up. That happens because an Egyptian, a Hamite, called Achmos, A-H-M-O-S, A-H-M-O-S, and that would be the name in that first block at the very top, the start of the 18th dynasty, Achmos Conquers the Hyksos, displacing them and setting himself up as Pharaoh. He is a Hamite, of course. He's a natural Egyptian. He restores Egypt to Egyptian rule in 1570 B.C. This is the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. He's ignorant of Joseph because he's not a descendant of the previous lines of pharaohs. He represents a whole new dynasty, a whole new house of rule, one that has no connection to past dynasties, no allies with them. They are men they don't know and don't care about. The 18th dynasty, by the way, comes to be the height of Egyptian power in all history. In fact, this is the first dynasty in which the kings took the name pharaoh for themselves. So this is the first pharaoh, literally. The new dynasty's arrival results in some immediate changes. And you can probably predict what those changes would be for life in the kingdom, particularly for any Semites who are still living in the land after this overthrow takes place. Achmos kills or just runs out every Semite that he can from the previous dynasty, those who were ruling in that previous dynasty. And then any other Semites who were just living in the land were enslaved. And, of course, that would include the nation of Israel. In Exodus now, back to Exodus chapter 1, let's pick up at that point, verse 9. Now we're going to see what comes from the fact that we have this change in dynasty and we have Achmos now ruling. Verse 9, it says he, referring to the pharaoh, but we know now we're talking about Achmos. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigorously, rigorously, sorry. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed upon them. So Pharaoh Akhmos tells the Egyptians, we have reasons to fear the Hebrews. In verse 9, I think our English translation doesn't serve us very well, at least mine doesn't. It says the Hebrews are more and mightier than the Egyptians, but that's not true. The Egyptians far outnumbered the nation of Israel in their own land. The correct Hebrew translation would read something more like, Israel is too numerous and mighty. Not more so than we are, just they're too numerous, they're too mighty, they're too big, they're too big a threat. And of course, what he's afraid about is that as a Semite group, their strength and size and number is great enough that they pose a real threat to his power, to his throne. And if they were to combine with any Semites from outside the land, they could try to retake the throne. Well, that's probably a pretty reasonable concern, except that that's not Israel's intent, but he doesn't know that. So he appoints taskmasters over them. That's a nice way of saying he enslaves them. So you have enslaved Jews now, and in that role as slaves, they work to create important Egyptian cities, including Ramses and Pithom, which historically was called Heliopolis. We won't care. So, so you have this large pool of slave labor now, but the labor is important. The labor is doing good things. But folks, the labor is not why he did this. The reason he has enslaved them, he gives in his upfront statement. It's to make them smaller, to reduce the growth, to, to make this people essentially disappear, to reduce them in strength and in number. He wants to wear them down to nothing. But yet in verse 12, we're told that strategy didn't work against all logic, by the way. In face of all that opposition, they continue to grow and become mightier. In fact, they become so numerous and vigorous that they cause dread for the Egyptians. It seems like the harder they push the nation and the more labor they throw on them, the hardier they get, not the weaker they get. And that's exactly what God intended in their weakness. God's strength is shown to the Egyptians. That's the whole point here. In persecution, God's people grow. That's not natural. In a natural situation, to put someone under this kind of strain would have reduced their number, would have reduced their strength and their inability to find strength at night to reproduce, to put it bluntly, or to be able to survive disease. I mean, that's literally what would happen, right? In the face of that, though, they're just bursting at the seams with people. And you see this, by the way, repeated in church history. As a principle of how God works with his own people, this is not unique. To the nation of Israel, the church has seen this exact same pattern. Whenever the church has suffered under the worst persecution, it has grown the fastest. And that growth has always been of the best kind as well. The church has, in its past, it's grown committed disciples who faced persecution with courage and spoke openly about Jesus in the face of great trial when God was at work in that way. And I would argue that, conversely, the weakness that I think is evident in the Western church particularly today, is probably related to our comfortable circumstances. So as a church, you see this pattern in like manner to Israel under persecution and stress and trial. God does his best work because in our weakness, he's seen as strong. But on an individual level, the New Testament calls every Christian to rejoice in trial and persecution in our personal life, because in a similar way, those tests produce great strength in our walk and in our faith. James probably says it best of all, James 1, 2 and onward. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So just like the nation of Israel as a whole, we should expect to see unexplainable, counterintuitive, illogical growth in the face of trials that we might have expected would crush us. And if we go out of our way to avoid such trials, what does that say about our prospects for growth and strengthening? Uh, another twenty five years pass. Achmos dies. And so his son Amenhotep the first succeeds him, and while Dad Akmos was unsuccessful in stopping the growth through slavery, Amenhotep decides he can make a second run at this, so he comes up with a new tactic. Verse fifteen. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah or Shapra. And the other was named Pua. Bad name, bad name. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Amenhotep gives this direction. Now he's speaking to two women. But it's an instruction that's intended to filter to all the midwives. These must have been the head midwives, women who had some responsibility over the the whole of them. And he asked them to go out and kill all the male children at birth. Now, what he's expecting to have happen here is that the role of a midwife is to receive the child at birth. And as they receive this child, if it's a male, the woman's still in labor. The dad's somewhere else. If it's a boy, just suffocate him real quickly and say, oh, I'm sorry, it was stillborn. If it's a woman, just let it be. Now, the names of these two women are Semite names. So what we're probably seeing here are two other slaves who are slaves themselves, but not Jews. They're just other Semites who are employed or enslaved rather to work for this purpose. Now, we're told here that they are to kill the boys only. Why the boys only? Well, in that day, Jews counted ethnicity as coming through the father. So if father was a Jew, you were a Jew. But if your father was something else, you were not a Jew. If the nation lost an entire generation of boys, then all those girls that were allowed to live would have married Egyptian men, more than likely. And then the next generation would have been Egyptian, not Jewish. Here again, another tactic of the enemy to try to pollute and destroy the line of Israel. As before with Judah, God intervenes. He protects the integrity of the nation of Israel. He ensures these women were God-fearing and willing to obey him and not obey Pharaoh. And, of course, they don't do what they're told to do. Now, when Pharaoh asks, what's up? I see all these little Jewish boys running around, and I didn't expect to see that. What's going on? They lie, to put it bluntly. They lie to him. They give an excuse. They say the Jewish women are so vigorous that we get told there's a baby coming. By the time we get there, he's already out. Well, I'm guessing this Pharaoh is not really very smart about how these things work. So... He buys it, right? Okay, I guess that happens. That's strange. I didn't know that could happen. And as a result, they protect the Jewish men. Now, this is a lie, but it's one intended to protect God's people in the face of a greater sin brought upon God's people from an enemy. This is similar to the choice that Rahab made, as you probably know. And as a result, God rewards these women and establishes a household for them. There's a great teaching in there about lying in general and how at times we see it working to God's advantage. But that's not time we have tonight. So you'll just have to be frustrated over that. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, Amenhotep's plan fails just like Dero O'Dad's plan fails. There is yet one more attempt to come. So when we pick up next week, we come at that point. The last verse of chapter one really is the next section, which talks about the third attempt. And the third attempt is the most involved. And it eventually leads to Moses. So we'll come into that third attempt next week. Father, thank you, Lord, for good night, a chance to teach, a chance to listen, a chance to learn. Father, I hope that uh, what we'll learn in the weeks to come will build us into a people, Father, that can stand apart from the world in a way that glorifies you while still in the world, Father, as ambassadors for Christ. Empower us for that purpose, Father. Strengthen us in the face of our trials and give us a heart to know and preach your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.